What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. A new report details the denial of legal representation for kids in foster care, its impacts, and why adequate legal representation matters. Here to discuss is Kim Dvorak, the executive director of the National Association of Counsel for Children and former defense attorney who represented children in the foster system. Kim joins us this morning from Denver. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Pat. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I was just in your lovely city last week. Um, Kim, first, why do young people in foster care need attorneys? Well, you know, the foster care system was designed to obviously protect and help young children. But what we often find is that the child in the center of the case is the one person that doesn't have a voice. Um, and the impact on children in foster care is, is traumatic. Um, it's life-altering um, and often permanently so. You know, children who are removed from their parents removed from their families they they're also removed from their from their schools from their pets from their siblings from places of worship from their community um, and it's an incredibly disruptive system that really um, impacts their own personal liberty interests impacts their right to family integrity um, and impacts their voice in the process and we feel it's essential uh, to provide all children and youth access to highly trained attorneys to advocate for their rights and advocate for their legal interests in the foster care system. A, a, a point, a point that is made in the the report is that kids that are caught up in the criminal legal system, young people that are caught up in the criminal legal system, are afforded. Um, the right to an attorney, but that right is not yet afforded to kids across the foster care system. But that got me to thinking about additional parallels for kids that get caught up in the carceral system and kids that are caught up in the foster care system. And I wonder if you could talk about that and then, of course, draw a line to something that that you've spoken about in the past, and that is the the foster care to prison pipeline. We have to talk about the school to prison pipeline, but there's a foster care to prison pipeline as well. Sure. There are incredible parallels between uh, the foster care system and the juvenile legal system in particular, um, two areas that I have worked in parallel, uh, in tandem in. Um, And, you know, there are both, like I said, liberty interests for young people in both systems. There's interests of family engagement for young people in both systems. And there's interest in having a voice in the process. Um, when we work with, you know, lived experience experts who have experienced all kinds of systems, you know, the, the juvenile legal system, the child welfare system, the immigration system, um, what is most, I guess, frustrating, disruptive uh, for them is that they feel like they don't have a voice, that everyone else in the room is talking about what they all think is in the young person's best interest. Uh, but that children and youth, they know what their families need. They know what, um, you know, services they might need in their community to make their families stronger and help them thrive within their communities. Um, and so it's just imperative across all of these systems that we elevate the voice of young people. Um, you know, as I've shared in some of our prior writing, 
black youth in particular in foster care are twice as likely to be arrested and entering the school to prison pipeline. And the risk of doing that um, is more likely to happen if the young person is in a congregate care setting, a group setting, a group home, a residential facility. Um, and the deeper one gets into these systems, such as the child welfare system, you know, the deeper into group care, congregate care, residential care, multiple institutional care, the higher the racial disparity is and the higher the risk of arrest. Uh, so much so that researchers are pointing to the child welfare system as a driver of racial disparities in the juvenile legal system. Um, so we have to really confront racial disparities. We have to confront, you know, bias and inadequate due process for young people and families as early as we can in the process um, across all of these systems. And we think council is instrumental in making that happen. I'm going to veer to the left just a little bit. It's not directly uh, talking about, about legal counsel, but one of the first organizing campaigns that I worked on um, many years ago was called Family Care, Not Foster Care, right? And we were really highlighting the importance of young people to be placed with families, right, as opposed to in congregate foster care settings. And the state was just absolutely resistant to that. They would rather pay, you know, $1,500 months to, to $1, a month to a stranger than ensure that a granny um, could could take on the, their child. Um, I, I just wonder if you could talk about the importance of, of family and family reunification and how that is a pathway to wellness for communities and also the disparity, right, in, in white kids being able to be placed with relatives versus black, brown, indigenous, poor children. Absolutely. Um, we as an organization at the National Association of Council for Children, alongside partner organizations across the country, advocate very strongly to keep children, number one, in their families with their parents, uh, we spend about $9 billion a year as a country on foster care, and it is time that we shift those resources to preventative systems and preventative services. There's quite a movement to do that right now, talking about providing you know, parents access to civil legal counsel. We know that 70% of these cases are based on allegations of neglect. And that could be related to housing, that could be related to childcare, that could be related to access to public benefits. So we would like to see, you know, families have access to attorneys much earlier in the process to address those civil legal needs uh, that might prevent entry into the system altogether. Uh, there's also a movement now to provide more resources to kin. Um, because kin have not received the same amount of support from state governments as as you said, stranger foster care. Um, and so there's a movement to do that on the federal level to shift more resources for kinship care. And I think states are starting to, to do that as well. Uh, there's a new Family First Prevention Services Act that's now five years uh, into its implementation, uh, which also is trying to drive more resources to prevention and to the front end of the system uh, to avoid Deeper, deeper involvement, which, as I said, is where racial disparities are even more uh, prevalent. And just to give my listeners an idea, right, how long this conversation has been going on and it was happening before I started that campaign. I'm talking about I was 24, so we're talking about 25 years ago almost that we were having yeah. this conversation about placing. It's something that seems so logical, ensuring that young people remain with 
with Ken, one of the other things that is talked about in the report is that it's not just any old attorney will do, right? We need attorneys that are trained to work with children. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and why that matters? Yes. Providing quality legal representation um, is vital for young people. We do not want to set up a system where attorneys do not have training and can do more harm than good. So we advocate for uh, centralized legal representation systems in the report. You know, we want states to invest in training for attorneys and invest in supervision, invest in ongoing professional development. Um, We certify attorneys at our organization as child welfare law specialists, and there's about a 500-page book that's involved in, in doing that. Um, so there, there really is a lot to learn. You have to know not only the law, but you have to understand child development, adolescent development. You have to know the services available to communities. Um, you have to know, you know, justice plus in so many areas. And so what we've seen is that the research that has been done on high quality legal representation shows when a specialty trained lawyer is assigned to represent a child, that child is more likely to be reunified with parents, more likely to um, have permanency than young people who do not have access to to counsel and who do not have access to to trained counsel. Um, One of the areas that is also relevant to this is compensation, right? How much are lawyers getting paid? Often compensation systems incentivize attorneys taking on too many cases if they're privately appointed. Um, And so we really have to look at compensation. We have to look at caseloads to make sure that there are adequate resources to really provide zealous representation to young people. I was also going to ask you about funding for attorneys that um, that take on these cases. You talked about compensation, but where, for states where there is a guarantee that kids in the foster care system get access to legal representation, does that come from fu- public funding, state budgets, federal funding? Where does the money come from? It's a combination of sources, and we describe those in Seen, Heard, and Represented in our report. We talk about um, a state investment is always going to be necessary. States will you know, need to put this in their budgets in order to establish legal systems, uh, but there is federal funding available. Uh, in fact, just a couple of years ago, the federal government opened up reimbursement under Title IV-E of the Social Security Act so that attorneys who represent children and parents can, uh, those legal systems can access federal funding to pay up to 50% of their administrative costs. Um, So there is a new federal funding stream that we are urging all states to tap into, um, to leverage, because that federal funding can help augment the services you provide, you know, can also help add social workers to teams, add peer advocates to teams. There's also a you know, plethora of federal grant funding that is available to support legal representation in addition to private philanthropy and partnerships with law schools, partnerships with pro bono clinics. Uh, there are many ways to look at the system that a state has and develop an appropriate um, enhancement and augmentation to it. For the 14 states that do not guarantee the right to an attorney, is there a reason why? Is it funding? Is there a different kind of pushback? And what movements are on the ground um, to to ensure that that shifts it in those states? 
Thank you for asking that question. Yes, there, there. I would say two primary um, objections. One is funding. Um, that if a state does not currently provide legal representation, that is an investment that is required. Um, even though we've shown that cost, there's a cost-benefit analysis to reduction in foster care um, to the state, but funding is always an issue. There's also frankly, paternalism. You know, there are systems that have been operating for a very long time uh, simply using volunteers, simply using uh, court-appointed special advocates, and they see the that level of advocacy as sufficient. They think that uh, it's, in fact, dangerous for children to have their own attorney, to have their own voice, uh, that they would request things that are harmful to them. And we know that no child wants to put themselves in harm's way. So we, we disagree with those statements and we are trying to mobilize on the ground by working with young people who have lived experience in foster care. You know, they really are the best messengers in advocating for the importance of this. You know, we're also building coalitions in many of the states and there's been successful legislative efforts and there's ongoing legislative efforts. Um, but Unfortunately, federal law permits this duality of either appointing an attorney or appointing a volunteer. And so we also have to change the law at the federal level um, because there, there should be no exchange. If you, if you have a medical issue, you need a doctor. If you have a legal issue, you need a lawyer. And uh, we wouldn't substitute you know, volunteers for doctors to do surgery. Why would we substitute volunteers for kids to be in the middle of court proceedings. So we, we really need to um, change the narrative around the importance of youth voice, around the importance of due process, and uh, what's at stake. You know, there's a lot at stake for young people, their families uh, in these cases. Kim, can you walk us through some of the rights that children in foster care systems do have? I know it varies by state to state, but but generally rights that, that an attorney would help them understand that they have and would help them fight for. Sure. And you're right. It, it does vary from state to state. There are a number of, you know, youth bill of rights in addition to typical statutory rights. Um, but, you know, there are standards regarding whether the child should be removed in the first place. You know, did the agency employ reasonable efforts to prevent the removal of that child? Is the agency, um, you know, deploying reasonable efforts to reunify that child? Um, is there sufficient evidence to underlie the allegations? Um, you know, young people in some states, hopefully more states will have the right to sibling contact, have the right to family contact. Um, and at being able to advocate for that and demand that is really essential. Uh, in addition to, you know, all of the rights that would come attendant to any court proceeding, you know, be able to file a motion, make demands, call, call a witness, call an expert witness, uh, put on evidence, take a case up on appeal. Um, you know, advocate for reunification. There's so many legal rights and legal decisions that are made across a child welfare proceeding um, that impact children that must simply have, you know, recourse through counsel to be able to really engage in those proceedings. You know, you need, the lawyer really needs to 
spend time with the young person advising them of their rights. It's, it's not enough to simply do it once. You know, you, you, you need to advise them often. You need to keep them updated. We really promote um, a very engaged model of legal representation where lawyers are meeting with their clients far earlier than the court appearance. You know, we do not want attorneys just checking in five minutes before the case is called in the hallway. We are really promoting, um, you know, holistic 360 degree advocacy uh, that it really requires a lot of time to both explain rights, explain what a trial looks like, explain what hearings look like, um, and explain the potential outcomes before that in-court advocacy can even begin. All right, Kim, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and for your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I hope your listeners will check out our website, counselforkids.org, to download Seen, Heard, and Represented. Thank you, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.